Pit of the Thieves, one of the most difficult sections of all of Inferno. <laughs> there are harder parts ahead of us in Paradiso, for sure, but of Inferno, this is about as tough as it gets. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Welcome with Dante, and in this episode of this podcast, that slow walks through Dante's masterwork comedy, we're going to go through the entire evil pouch of the thieves, the seventh of the Malavolja, in the giant circle of fraud, the eighth circle of hell. If none of that numerical valuation makes any sense to you, maybe you should go back and catch up with us. There's a lot of episodes back behind us that get us to this spot. So what is this spot? This spot is a spot in which we're going to go through the entire passage all the way from Canto 24, line 61, all the way through Canto 26, line 12. I'm going to read it to you because I think it's extremely important that you see it as a passage or, shall we say, hear it as a passage. I think it's important that you hear the scope of it, the epic nature of it, the giant quality of the writing. I think it's all important to see all of that. I'm not going to put any sound effects on it. I just want you to sit back and listen to this story here in the Pit of the Thieves in the larger circle of fraud. And at the end of that, then I want to come out with some questions and implications and larger problems about the entire sequence that jumps from Canto 24, line 61, all the way up to Canto 26, line 12. Let me remind you how we got here. We were down in the bottom of the pit with the hypocrites. We climbed up with our pilgrim and his guide Virgil from that pit, that place where Virgil had seen Caiaphas stretched out on the ground in a crucified manner, stretched out there. They had come back up from the hypocrites, and Dante had got a tongue lashing from Virgil because Dante was completely out of breath when he reached the top Then they walked along and started to hear things from the seventh pit. And that's where we're going to pick it up. I just ask you to keep that notion of hypocrites in your head, of arduous climbs, of Virgil tongue lashing the pilgrim for being out of breath, and then this. We took the path up the ridge, which was craggy, narrow, altogether poor going, and way more precarious than the previous one. I was talking as I went along so I wouldn't appear to be worn out when a voice came out of the next ditch, seemingly not capable of forming words. I don't know what it said since I'd gotten to the apex of the bridge that crosses over at that spot, but the one who spoke seemed to be on the move. No matter how much I wanted to, my sharp eyes couldn't make out the bottom down there because of the darkness. So I said, Master, when you get to the next embankment, let's descend along the wall. From this point, I hear something but can't understand it. I look down but can construe nothing. The only reply, he said, that I'd give you is just to make it so, for an honorable request should be met with an action done in silence. We descended the head of the bridge where it joins up with the eighth embankment. Now the pouch was made clear to me. I saw a horrifying pileup of snakes in it and of so many wild types that the memory of it still curdles my blood. Libya, with all its sand, has nothing to brag about, even if it's full up with Caledri, Jaculi, and Ferrere, with Chincras and Amphispene. It hasn't ever had 
not even with all that's in Ethiopia and even in the lands out beyond the Red Sea, as much pestilence as this, nor is repellent either. In the middle of this cruel and nasty abundance, people were running around naked and crazed with fear without a crevice to hide in or even a heliotrope. Their hands were lashed behind their backs with snakes who had stuck their heads and tails through their crotches and joined themselves in knots in front of their stomachs. Lo and behold, Right at one of the shades who was near our bank, a serpent shot out toward him and clamped itself onto the spot where the neck and shoulder blades are corded together. Neither an O nor an I was ever written so fast as that soul caught fire, burned up, and was morphed into cinders just as he collapsed down to a pile of ashes. But then he was lying on the ground all unmade, And as he did so, the dust reassembled itself together, and immediately he came back to how he was. In like manner, the great sages tell us the truth about how the phoenix dies and is born again just as it comes up to its 500th year. It doesn't feed on grasses or grains in its life, but on the tears of incense and on black cardamom. And its final nest shroud is made up of nard and myrrh, like a guy who falls down without really knowing why, either forced to the ground by a demon's tug or paralyzed in some way that lays the guy out. When he gets back up, he looks around, all astonished, completely lost in the middle of the suffocating agony he's endured, just gawking and sighing. And so this sinner got back up on his feet. Oh, the sheer power of God. It's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vendetta. Then my guide asked the guy who he was, so he came back with this. I rained down from Tuscany a little while ago, right into this fierce maw. I liked to live a bestial life, not a human one, so it's no surprise that I was a mule. I'm Vanifucci, the beast. I denned down in Pistoia. I to my guide, tell him not to slink away by asking him what sin got him thrown down here, because I know him as a bloodthirsty and cruel man. When he overheard me, the sinner didn't play around. Instead, he did an about face to confront me head on and got painted with acrid shame. He said, it causes me more suffering that you have caught me in the misery where you see me now than I ever felt when I was torn out of my former life. I can't even nix a reply to what you ask. I got shoved down here because I swiped the gorgeous pieces from the church's treasury. Although others took the blame for the crime, but so that you may not take any joy from seeing me down here, and if you ever get away from this dark spot, open your ears to what I've got to say and catch this. Pistoia first gets rid of its blacks, then Florence renovates its people in ways. Next, out of the valley of Magra, Mars pulls a lightning bolt out of a bunch of threatening clouds, along with a sudden and bitter tempest, all as they hurry onto war above Campo Piceno. That bolt will tear clear the mist and fog so that the whites will feel the hard blows. What's more, I'm telling you this, just to make you suffer. At the conclusion of his words, the thief put his hands up with the sign of the two figs and hollered, In your face, God, I aimed them at you. 
From that moment on, the snakes became my friends because one wound itself all around his neck as if it wanted to say, I don't want you to speak another word. And another wound itself around his arms to hold him tight, knotting itself so tightly around his front that he couldn't wiggle out. Oh, Pistoia, Pistoia, why don't you legislate your own incineration so that you won't stick around since you go way beyond the corruption of your founders? Throughout all the circles of dark hell, I didn't see a single spirit so full of pride toward God, not even that guy who fell off the walls of Thebes. Fuji fled without uttering another word. That's when I saw a centaur filled with rage run up and shout, Where is he? Where's that acid soul? I don't believe the swampy Marema has as many serpents as squirmed on this guy's back from his butt to the spot where our human bits began. Just above his shoulders, right at the nape of his neck, a dragon was hunched there with its wings spread out and ready to set fire anyone who got close. My master said, that's Kakas, who under the rocks of Mount Aventine, time and again made a lake of blood. He doesn't go the way of his brothers because of the fraudulent theft he made from the great herd that lived near his domain. Because of that, his double-dealing career was ended under Hercules' club, who gave him a hundred thwacks, although he didn't even feel the tenth one. That centaur galloped by as Virgil was speaking, then... Down below us, three spirits came up, whom neither my guide nor I noticed at first, until they hollered, Who are you guys? At this we stopped telling tales and turned our attention to them, and them alone. I didn't know who they were, but it came to pass, as it does through sheer coincidence a lot of the time, that one of them mentioned the name of another by saying, Where in the world did Janfa get off to? That's why I... To make my guide pay attention, set a finger from my chin to my nose. If, reader, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, it's no cause for surprise because I, who saw it, can still hardly permit myself to believe it. While I held my eyebrows up to get a good look at them, a serpent with six feet suddenly launched itself onto one of them and hugged him tight. Its middle feet got wrapped around his gut, its front feet took hold of both his arms, then it stuck its fangs first into one cheek, then into the other. Its back feet stretched down his thighs, and it jammed its tail between them, curving it up along his butt. Ivy never gripped a tree trunk so tightly as this nasty beast put its tendrils all around the guy's body. Then, as if they were made of hot wax, they started to fuse together, mixing their colors until neither seemed what he or it had been at the start. It's the same way that when paper burns, a dark brown color moves in front of a flame where it's not yet charred black, but all the white is long dead. The other two spirits were looking on, and each one cried out, Wow, Agnolo, how you morph! See, you're already neither two things nor one. By that point, the two heads had become one, as the two expressions fused into one face until both were lost. Two arms got made out of four limbs. The thighs, along with the calves, the belly, and the chest became body parts that were never seen before. Each former feature was obliterated. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing, such as it was. 
It went away with slow steps. Just as a lizard under the heavy lash of the dog star runs from hedge to hedge and glitters like lightning as it crosses the road, just so appeared a flaming little serpent, purple and black like peppercorns. He came right up to the gut of each of the other two. Right at that spot where we get our first food, it fixed itself onto one of them. Then it fell off and stretched out in front of him. The bitten one looked at the serpent but said nothing. Instead, he just stood planted on his feet, yawning as if fatigue or a fever plagued him. He held the serpent's gaze. It held his. Smoke billowed out from both his wound and the serpent's mouth. And then the plumes commingled. Let Lucan shut up right now, especially where he talks about the misery of Sibelius and Nasidius. Let him wait to hear what my bow lets loose. Let Ovid shut up in those passages about Cadmus and Arethusa. If his poetry morphs one into a snake and the other into a fountain, I'm not jealous of him in the least. Because with two natures facing each other, he never transformed things so that their forms quickly swapped places with their materiality. They responded to each other by normative rules. The snake made a fork in its tail and the wounded guy's feet pulled together. His calves, then his thighs stuck together so tight, in fact, that it was impossible to see a crack between them. Meanwhile, the snake's tail took the shape that the other had lost and its skin got soft while the others got hard. I saw the man's arms shrink up to their pits and the two feet of the beast, which were short, lengthened in a reverse way to what the other guy lost. Its back feet then twisted together to become the member that men hide while the other one on the miserable soul became two paws. The smoke enclosed both the one and the other, giving off a new color and making hair grow on the parts of one while it sloughed off the parts of the other. One stood up, the other fell down, but neither of them turned their baleful lanterns from each other, even as their muzzles were changing under them. The one who was erect scrunched up his face toward his temples so that the excess material extruded itself into ears out of his smooth, flat cheeks. The excess material that didn't switch around toward the back made the stuff of the nose on his face and thickened his lips to the right size. As to the one on the ground, his muzzle stretched out and his ears pulled back into his head about as the horns of a snail retract. His tongue, which had been in one piece and capable of speech, split itself and the forked tongue of the other one fused together. That's when the smoke stopped. The one that had become a wild beast fled hissing down the valley and the other who could now speak spat at the beast. Then he turned his new shoulders toward the third guy and said, my wish is that Buoso has to run, as I've had to, on all fours in this ditch. In this way, I saw the seventh loaded shipment mutate and transform. The sheer novelty of it all lets me excuse my quill if it strays a bit out of bounds. And although my eyes were confounded and my soul was distraught, these sinners could not slip away quietly enough that I didn't clearly recognize Puccio Sciancato, who was the only one of the three companions who remained unchanged after they'd arrived on the scene. The other was the one whom you, Gaville, still lament. 
take pride, Florence, that you've gotten so grandiose, that you beat your wings over sea and land. Your name even spreads out across hell. Among the thieves, I found five who were your citizens, a fact that brings me much shame. It certainly doesn't raise you to the heights of honor. But if those dreams we have near dawn are true, you'll feel in only a little more time the very things that Prato and others crave for you to feel. If it had already happened, it wouldn't have been too soon. And would that it had happened, because it must happen. Even so, it will weigh me down more and more the longer I live. Well, that's the whole passage. The giant, long sequence amongst the thieves in the seventh Malabolgia. Let's talk through some implications of this long passage. There is much that can be said about it, and I want to start with a confession. Without a doubt, the pit of the thieves is the hardest bit of Inferno to come to terms with. It is complicated. It may be overwritten. It may be misdirected. It may be, well, I'm going to say, a swarm of black holes, mini black holes, each of which can catch you and pull you down into interpretive quandaries right and left. It's a very tough spot in Inferno. It's almost as tough as some of the spots in Purgatorio and Paradiso way ahead of us. But it is a hard passage to pull apart and to look at and think through. And we've been here a long time. And I want to confess to you that even though I have offered you multiple interpretations of the events in this evil pouch, I am still not satisfied with them. I still find myself at places thinking, seriously, is that what you really think, Mark? Even my interpretation, it seems to me, falls apart in places. And I want you to understand that that's important to see. It's very hard to get a handle on this pouch, and it's very important to admit that. So what else can we say about it? Well, one thing, the writing is much more, shall we say, fulsome. It's much grander, bigger. It's not constricted. It's not tight. It's not concise in any way. And this is a grand change from the opening cantos of Inferno. If you go back and just look at even the first and second canto of Inferno, just go back to those opening bits, you'll see the writing is much tighter. It's much more concise. It's much more compressed. If you think about what happens with the avaricious and the prodigal rolling their rocks around, or if you think about what happens with even the angry in the river sticks, it's much more concise. This is long and drawn out. I'm not saying that it's wordy, and I'm not saying that Dante is misusing words in any way. I'm saying that the pacing of the writing has changed. It has slowed down. It is much more descriptive. It is much bigger in scope. The words themselves are more difficult. You should know that the Florentine is getting more and more difficult as we move down Inferno. The original language is getting more and more difficult through these passages. It's getting harder and harder to come to terms with some of the weird appositional phrases, with some of the participles, with how they function in the text. You should just know that these bits here on out become increasingly problematic for translators because the writing is getting more complicated, more developed, more elaborate, more Byzantine, maybe more overwritten. Mm. 
different in all kinds of ways. Okay, let's move on to a third point. The pilgrim functions almost as a mere observer in this long bit inside the seventh of the Malabolgia. We don't get very much from the pilgrim at all, except a curious thing that five Florentines show up. He says, I didn't know any of them. Then at the very end, he says, oh, I did know Puccio Sciancato. That is so strange. It leads you to believe that these passages have been rewritten and redrafted because why didn't the poet know Puccio from the very beginning? What What is it with Puccio? And furthermore, why is Puccio the one not changed? Why is it important to have one thief not changed? Now, there's a couple of reasons that perhaps for this. One is, if you remember, I told you Puccio Shankato's last name is basically Puccio the Cripple. And maybe that nicknaming is a transformation. Puccio has already been transformed by his nickname. Maybe. Doesn't seem like it holds much water to me. Maybe it's important that Dante not have everybody change. That plot then can go on forward. That Puccio is going to have a metamorphosis. And everybody's going to have more and more and more metamorphoses. Or maybe Dante is just pulling back from his own notion of the flexibility of identity at the very end. How come he didn't know this guy at the beginning and then knew him at the end. Curious. Almost seems as if there's a rewriting problem going on here. At least if we were in a modern poem, I would say that. Dante, it's hard to know. Also intriguing is the fact that Vani Fucci says, I'm telling you this to make you suffer. Remember, I'm telling you about what's going to happen with the blacks and the whites inside of Florence to make you suffer. And then at the end of the passage, after the denunciation of Florence, the poet seems to be suffering. It's going to weigh me down more and more the older I get. One suffering is caused by someone else, and the other suffering is internalized. Is that a metamorphosis, or is that a shift in the overall strategy of the passage itself? Not clear, but I can certainly point it out. And while I'm pointing out things about blacks and whites, think about that paper burning. Remember, it's burning and it's changing color and the white is disappearing and the black is appearing. We just had a big prophecy about blacks and whites. And we've got all this bit about Florentine strife with blacks and whites. Is that connected? Is there a political allegory going on even inside that metaphor? Not sure. Maybe it doesn't seem likely that Tante would just stick a black and white reference in this passage in which blacks and whites are definitely defined by Vani Fucci. Is the politics working here with metamorphosis? Are there political issues with metamorphosis? Is politics part of the metamorphosis, the infernal metamorphosis of our world? We can definitely say that Caucus, that centaur with the serpents all over him and the dragon on his back, is a dividing mechanism. I mean, here's Vani Fucci, here's his incineration and reconstitution. Caucus runs on the scene, and then we get the five Florentines. So this centaur, this classical figure, functions as a dividing mechanism. Just think about that. A classical mythological figure functions as a dividing mechanism in a text of modern citizens of Florence and Pistoia 
And that classical reference sits between the metamorphoses, dividing them into two parts. Is that the role of a classical figure? Are classical figures still the ballast of the poem? Are they still the center pole, the tent pole of the poem? Is that what's going on with Cochrane? That he's there as a mythological figure to kind of ground the passage while modern citizenry are on either side of him? Not sure, but I can say he's right in the dead center of it all. And that dead center of it all is this strange centaur who doesn't really seem to belong here, although maybe he does, since he did steal Hercules's cattle. So maybe he belongs here, but is he being tormented here, or is he one of the tormentors? His role is unclear. Is that what's going on here? That somehow the modern figures are clearer than the classical mythology, and the classical mythology is starting to become more and more opaque in Inferno, because that does seem to happen over the course of Inferno. Is this part of that? Is that a strategy of the poet? So many questions. I got so many questions. And here comes some more. Notice that the passage begins in the pouch with an inchoate voice in the pit, and that by the end of it, we end up with a prophetic denunciation of Florence. That can't be a mistake. That has to be the way the whole thing is structured. An inchoate cry from the pit, which must be torment and sorrow, back to a prophetic utterance that leads the poet to be sorrowful. Interesting that that change happens over the course of this Malabolgia. And there's another change that happens. The pilgrim may be an observer in the background, but the poet is always around. In the seventh Malabolgia of fraud in Inferno, we are never much farther from the poet than, than at any other place in all of comedy. The poet is right with us, constantly telling us things, constantly telling us, you know, hey, Lucan and Ovid, shut up, or constantly making denunciations of Pistoia or even Florence. The poet is always right there, right next to us in this pit. The pilgrim, not so much, pretty quiet. Uh, you know, a few questions, ask him who he is. You know, I, I knew him as a violent man. I recognize this one as Puccio. But the poet, always right in front of us. That seems really important to whatever is going on here. Then there's that confession at the end that maybe my quill went crazy. Maybe I went nuts in these passages and I just completely lost it. That kind of deflates the contest with Ovid and Lucan. I mean, there's all this braggadocio. Oh my God, Ovid, shut up. And Lucan, shut up. And I can do everything better than any of the rest of you can. And then at the end of it, uh -huh, I don't know, maybe I overwrote the whole thing. That's so weird, that confession deflating the ego structure that is built into there that I'm big enough poet that I can pull this off? Is it intentional that the poet isn't really big enough to pull this off yet? That that's part of what is going on in this pit? That the pit represents a place where the poet can't quite get to? Or that what's necessary to do what happens in this pit? The metamorphoses robs, thieves, robs, thieves, thieves, get it, thieves, robs the poet of his uh, centrality, of his certitude. Is that part of what's going on here? It seems like it. It seems like that's what's happening here. N not sure. So many questions. Here's another one. 
There is a loss of self throughout this pouch. People change, they metamorphosize, they fuse into each other, they swap places. There's a whole metamorphic change of the self throughout. And there even seems to be a loss of the poetic self in that last confession. So we have the poet kind of withdrawing and saying, oh, maybe my quill got overactive here. So there's a loss of the poet's self at the end of the passage. And we end at this place of an uncertain poet, but a very certain prophet. We've got a poet who is still struggling to voice his own text, but that his condemnation of the sins of the world are becoming surer and surer. The understanding of the world's ills is coming into clearer focus, while the poetics needed to describe the world's ills and ultimately its redemption are still not there quite yet. There is a final metamorphosis that we haven't even talked about in this pit, and that is putting living, breathing human beings into the fiction you're writing. Because that is the final metamorphosis, to put people that have walked around this earth into this landscape that is imagined, created out of the poet's mind. That's the final metamorphosis. And we shouldn't ever look away from that. We should always hold that in our heads and think that the poet has sworn on the beast of fraud that all of this really did happen. It seems as if the meta-literary, you know I love this, the meta-literary sequences are becoming much more pronounced. Because throughout this passage, there is an emphasis on truth and on fictionality at the same time. I really saw this. If you have trouble believing it, don't worry. I still can barely believe it, but I really did see it. And then, next step, Ovid and Lucan, shut up. I can write better than you can because you only made up this kind of metamorphosis. But I'm going to show you that I could do much more than that. Oh, my gosh. There's an emphasis on the fictionality, on the writing process, on the construction. I can outdo even you in my imagined space. But we just have an emphasis on truth claims. Or is that all one thing? Is it that I can outdo you because you told the truth and I can tell more truth. I can tell bigger truth. I can make a bigger metamorphosis. If so, are truth claims being made for Ovid and Lucan and the poet here, Dante, can outdo them? Or is it an uneasy back and forth between truth and fictionality in this pit that slowly morphs each into the other until it's impossible to tell them apart, except we do know that Puccio, the pilgrim, and Virgil escape unharmed, which also seems relevant to what happens in the pit. We're robbed, dare we say it, of a final resolution. We're robbed of a final metamorphosis. Is that what's going on? I have so many questions. Thanks for indulging me in this episode of the podcast, Working with Dante, with an overview of the entire pit of thieves. I hope you understand that I have more questions about what goes on here than I have answers. This is complicated stuff. We will never get to stuff this complicated again until we get up to Paradiso. So, so 
<laughs> buck up. Buck up if you found yourself a little at a loss for what's going on here. Because listen, it's going to get easier again. A little bit easier again in what's ahead. And it's going to take us a while. We've got to get our sea legs before we get up to those big, bad passages in Paradise. So to get there, subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. Please write a rating and please write a comment. Even great podcasts would do wonders. Thanks for being a part of my passion project. Thanks for being on this journey with me. I look forward to connecting with you online, in real life, wherever we can. And on next to one of the best and brightest centers of hell on the podcast, Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you then.